Healthcare moves fast. Today's disruptive capability is tomorrow's business as usual. Market Insights Live is a podcast presented by TripleTree, bringing together insight and perspective on the most pressing topics shaping the future of healthcare. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's Market Insights Live session. My name is Michael Carroll, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at TripleTree. I'm excited to introduce today's session focused on healthcare M&A on the move. As our industry has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic, M&A activity took a pause, but has quickly rebounded in the second half of the year. A reminder that today's discussion, the views and opinions expressed in the conversation are those of our participants and are not necessarily reflective of our policy or position as a firm. To begin today's discussion, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Scott Donahue. Scott is a senior director and leads the firm's coverage efforts for global companies pursuing growth strategies in healthcare. Scott, I'll turn things over to you to provide a perspective about what we're seeing across the marketplace. Well, thank you, Michael, and good morning to all of you who have joined our webcast to talk about the current state of healthcare M&A. As Michael mentioned, I'm Scott Donahue, and I'm one of the firm's senior directors. We're looking forward to sharing insights from our panel discussion and have assembled experienced leaders from McKesson, Teladoc Health, and Great Health Partners to share their perspectives on the current healthcare M&A environment. My colleague, Peter Erickson, will lead that discussion. But before we jump into that, we wanted to briefly share our perspectives on current healthcare M&A as a way to set up the panel conversation. So what is the state of the current healthcare M&A right now? In short, it's really red hot. Continuing the trend of market consolidation over the last few years, 2020 started out really looking no different than 2019 and recent years past. Private equity and strategic acquirers have been very active in the marketplace leading into March. But then, of course, COVID-19 hit, and not surprisingly, M&A activity more or less hit a wall. Many deals in the market were put on hold, while others saw their launch pull back. I think some opportunities were able to sneak through, but by and large, March, April, and May were a very slow period for healthcare M&A. But in a remarkable turn of events, starting midsummer, we're now seeing a tremendous acceleration in that healthcare M&A marketplace. Our discussion today will focus on COVID, COVID-19's impact to healthcare M&A, and we'll highlight some key learnings from our own transactions, and other, and we'll also hear from others who will share their experiences in doing and evaluating transactions in this environment. So when we look at recessionary periods and just a historical look at M&A, I'm going to show two charts here. The top chart is general M&A performance over the past few years, and uh, that M&A performance in a recessionary period. The recessionary periods are represented by gray bars in the chart. The top chart is general M&A activity, and the bottom chart is much more focused on healthcare. I think there's a couple of very interesting things to note in this chart. Typically, in recessionary periods, we'll see a decline in volume uh, and transaction value for both general M&A and healthcare M&A, but healthcare really isn't impacted to the extent of general M&A. Just looking at the chart, the the peak to valleys in recessionary periods for general M&A are much greater than specific healthcare market M&A, and we feel that healthcare really is much more resilient to recessionary periods than than general M&A. But when you look here at the last uh, line in the chart on the far right, healthcare has really taken a big impact this year. 
you know, the markets have, have really been impacted by COVID-19, especially early on, as a lot of things like healthcare volu volumes and just general uh, consumer interest and access to the healthcare system greatly changed with uh, the pandemic and, and risk of exposure. We think that there's still time this year for this gap in healthcare M&A to close significantly. And we're seeing a lot of that activity right now in the marketplace. I think when we look back at this chart here next year, we're gonna see that, uh, that gap close significantly. So as we mentioned, things are really picking up in the healthcare M&A marketplace. This is not all the deals that have occurred, but just a sample, a representative sample of transactions that have occurred in the marketplace here since COVID hit really in, in the April timeframe to now. There's a, a few really interesting things to note on this chart. First, you know, as we said, markets didn't entirely close down. They, they slowed quite a bit, but some deals got done. And we really pay credit to those firms that had the fortitude and the investment strategy and the plan to get deals done with their solid strategy in place during the early stages of COVID. Secondly, I, I think what, what we're seeing now is a real acceleration in transaction activity. The heat, as we said, is turning up. And we're seeing a strong resilience in public markets and the return of debt financing to help support these transactions. Uh, frankly, we, accept, we expect this accelerated pace of activity to continue for the coming months. I think third, we'll note that there's a real mix of uh, strategic and private equity investors participating in this marketplace. Private equity remains extremely aggressive in terms of their interest in healthcare consolidation. And I think strategic acquirers took the early stages of COVID-19 to reevaluate their strategies, look after some of their own internal operational and business issues. But the conversations we're having in the marketplace clearly indicate that M&A is back on top of the agenda for the strategic acquirers. I mean, if you look at some of those transactions here, and we'll hear from folks like Teladoc Health and their um, acquisition here of Lavongo, which is really sort of a a real milestone in the healthcare marketplace activity over the summer here. I think fourth, what we should would note here is that many sectors of M&A are, are represented uh, across healthcare here in this chart. We're seeing activity in things like digital health and consumerism and virtual health, which should not be a surprise at all, given the shift in, in COVID, but we're also seeing activities in more traditional areas like uh, behavioral health and post-acute care and other areas of healthcare IT like uh, revenue cycle management. I think it's really true that deal activity is spanning most, if not all, of the healthcare segments. You know, behind the scenes, there's a lot of capital that's waiting to be deployed in the marketplace. Private equity uh, has deep, deep pockets and unspent capital dry powder to put to work. And frankly, those groups are in the business of putting their, their capital to work. We'll see a lot of that uh, aggressive activity and that capital on the sidelines come back into the market. It already has, and it's coming back into the marketplace. But public company cash balances are also very strong right now. And as I said, our conversations and the behavior that we're seeing from uh, public companies and even private equity-backed strategic uh, companies uh, indicates that they're ready to put that capital to work in the marketplace. And, and this is one of the reasons why we feel that uh, that uh, M&A activity is going to continue to accelerate and pick up here uh, heading into fall this year and frankly into 2021 as well. You know, with that said, it's really worth recognizing that what it takes to get a deal done in a COVID-19 pandemic environment is different than what we saw early this year and, and last year. The challenges of COVID-19 have created um, new business cases and, and new use opportunities for healthcare for sure, but also really changed the way 
uh, to some extent that M&A gets done. Uh, we've talked about the way that COVID-19 has changed uh, healthcare and, and created new opportunities on last week's Market Insight webcast, you know, especially with the reimagining of healthcare. Uh, but we'll also talk about a lot of the other reprioritization of healthcare on today's webcast and hear from our panelists in terms of their perspectives on, on what and where healthcare um, priorities and, and strategies are changing. We'll talk about also things like prospecting and conference and meetings and restrictions and a lot of other COVID-related impacts and how that really changes the way companies go about meeting with and uh, building relationships with companies, a lot of the precursors to actually evaluating and, and, and getting M&A done. Uh, I think there are a lot of really good questions around uh, business implications to M&A, uh, virtual conferences and the use of technology. And we'll also talk about just public market support and debt market support and new equity issuances and how all that impacts uh, M&A. I think that to help put more color on the current state of healthcare M&A, I would like to introduce my colleague, Peter Erickson next, who's one of our firm's managing directors. We thought it important not just to hear from Peter and myself and investment bankers, but also our panelists that, that we've assembled who are doing um, transactions in this environment. Monica Brown, one of our panelists, is a senior vice president of mergers and acquisitions at McKesson Corporation. In this role, she's responsible for all of McKesson's corporate merger and acquisition activity. In, a, in addition to her current role, Monica has held various operating roles within the McKesson organization. Also joining us on our panel is Rafael Cofino. Rafael is a partner at Great Hill Partners and covers healthcare investment for the firm. Uh, Rafael also serves on the board of directors for several healthcare companies and has some great perspectives on not only evaluating and, and uh, investing in this environment, but what he'll also share what it's like to actually sit on the board and operate uh, companies uh, in the in COVID environment. And finally, our panelist is, uh, our, our final panelist is Drew Truitz. Drew is a senior vice president of uh, corporate development for Teladoc Health and is responsible for identifying, evaluating, and executing growth opportunities through partnerships, acquisitions, and joint, venture, joint ventures and other third-party relationships for the firm. In addition, Drew leads a lot of the post-integration efforts for Teladoc Health. Uh, Drew previously served uh, similar roles at Aetna and also at Blue Cross Blue Shield Ventures. Peter, let me turn it over to you to, uh, to walk through our panel conversation today. Well, first of all, Scott, thanks for the introduction. Monica, Drew, Raphael, thanks for joining us here today. We really appreciate it. I want to start higher level and just talk about the overall M&A environment. Thankfully, we've never been through a pandemic before. Hopefully, we won't again. So we're learning as we go here. But um, if we take a step back and, and just reflect on the work that everyone's doing today and, and how it's evolved, Monica, I'd love to start with you, and I'm going to start with a two-part question for you right off the bat here, um, and really just understand, if you wouldn't mind leading us off, how has McKesson and your work within your M&A and investing activity, how have you spent your time during COVID, which may not be a, a one-step, one, you know, one-answer-fits-all question or answer, I should say, so, but how have you generally spent your time? And then second, how has COVID affected your strategy, if at all. Uh, maybe just comment on that if you would. 
Yeah, thanks, thanks, Peter. And I think it, you know, as Scott mentioned um, early on uh, in his presentation, you know, all of our M&A activity paused uh, in April. So we really took advantage of that time, I think, to to build that, further build out our pipeline uh, of M&A opportunities, and also increased our level of um, proactive proactive outreach, both, you know, to potentially new targets as well as existing targets that had, that had paused their process. And, you know, at the start of all of this, um, I would have guessed that M&A would not come back until uh, late fall, you know, October, November timeframe. Um, however, June, June arrived and uh, M&A got back into full swing. So the deal st started coming back and we're now just as, you know, as busy pre-COVID, um, uh, working on transactions and I actually went back and, and looked and compared 2019 to 2020 and we're actually ahead on the level of activity year to date uh, than we were a year ago. So um, you know, I think I think it's pretty much business as usual for us. Our M&A strategy has really not shifted as a result of, of COVID. We just continue to build out our pipeline and you know execute strategic deals uh, uh, as we originally intended. Raphael, that's great. Raphael, um, so Scott mentioned it, Monica mentioned it. Are you seeing the same level of activity, this this ramp, especially from a new investment standpoint? And, and also, what are you seeing within your portfolio companies as they look at their continued growth from an M&A standpoint? Uh, I think our view is, uh, is very consistent with what has been shared. You know, I think um, from our perspective, you know, M&A cycles are, are unique. Uh, and this pullback was different than most recent downturns because it was really very much event-driven versus tied to some sort of cyclical or secular change. And so as a result, I think we think companies were much better positioned to, to weather their storm and, and be in a position to react quickly. Um, so early in the pandemic, you know, I think we saw a temporary pause uh, on M&A and investment activities. Uh, and then quickly thereafter, I think that we saw, you know, activity pick up really tied to, to involuntary activity. So very much distressed focused. Uh, but I think we're seeing a second wave right now. And this one is very much tied to uh, accelerating growth uh, and kind of a view over the next five to ten years. And you know, from our perspective, uh, similar to Monica, you know, we went back and looked at our data. We tracked several metrics in our funnel, including actionable opportunities. So those are deals that fit kind of our investment thesis and, and size and scale. And that metric is up 200% compared to uh, same period of last year. Um, so I think there's a, a pent up demand, and the backlog has been building. And you know, we would expect M&A activity to remain at, at these high levels uh, through 2020. Uh, and there may actually be an accelerant here, uh, given that I think there's a, a shared view in the market that there's an impending uh, tax change. And I think that's driving, uh, you know, founders, executives to uh, to really consider trying to get something done before the end of the year uh, in an accelerated fashion. So I think it'll stay busy here going forward. Drew, you've already been busy. Been a, you know, there's obviously a major announcement with your with Teladoc's merger with Lavango. One, congratulations. And and that was a big move in in this in the middle of the environment that that we're in. Talk about just the strategic thinking um, in making such a large transaction in this marketplace, and just how that came about, and and just how you process that through that, given given this you know time that we're all confronting right now. Sure. Uh, well, thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, you know, I think for. For, for Teladoc Health, um, obviously, uh, as we embarked into this sort of pandemic period, there was a, uh, you know, a huge uh, acceleration around virtual care. 
And so I'd say the first two months were entirely about, you know, uh, I mean, volume doubled overnight. Uh, we had customers offering uh, free telehealth to tens of millions of members. And so I think, uh, you know, making sure we had the supply to match the demand, making sure that all of the operations and systems were set up, um, revamping our deal desk because customers were coming and wanting to add telehealth services. There was a huge focus just in the first few months around around operations and responding to the huge increase in demand and the corresponding need for uh, supply to, to, to meet that demand for, for virtual care. Um, I'd say the next phase was starting to make sense of some of the changes we saw around telehealth, uh, obviously meaningful changes around consumer adoption, um, physicians' willingness to use, reimbursement, um, regulation, all of these things were swirling around. And so just um, really investing time as a management team to, uh, to put forward some, some more strategic thinking and saying, okay, how do we make sense of all of this and where do we think we need to go um, to stay ahead of the game. And that really led to you know, the decision around um, pursuing a, a merger with Livongo. I think for us, uh, we've continued to invest in um, whether organically or inorganically, expanding our capabilities, expanding into new markets. Uh, and ultimately we recognized that the most meaningful game changer given all of the different dynamics was to be able to fully address the entire continuum of care. And we've done that in a couple of different ways over time, um, but we saw um, with Livongo a real chance to address all of a, a patient's needs um, and all of our customers' needs um, in, one, in one, uh, one complete solution. Um, and so for us, it was a big, bold bet. Um, and I, uh, you know, clearly, um, but I think we have confidence that uh, it's the right move to address all of the different dynamics and changes that we're seeing in the marketplace. That's great. And, and Drew, as obviously with that announcement and all the work that you have going on there, are you still continuing to look at other opportunities? How's your, how are you with the acceleration of activity that we've just heard from? How are you able to manage and think, you know, process that given, I'm sure you got a lot on your plate as an organization with the merger? Sure. Yeah. We, and this is our second uh, deal um, this year. We we obviously announced and closed uh, the InTouch acquisition as well. Um, but uh, you know, part of why uh, I think we are the leader is that we don't stop. Um, you know, I think we are not done. Uh, we will continue to evolve our business and make investments and do acquisitions um, to really address what we see as you know, a much, still a much bigger opportunity um, out there in terms of virtual care. So uh, I, I do, as you mentioned in my introduction, I lead integration. So I'm staying very busy doing that, um, but I'm also uh, still very much taking calls uh, to, to, to see more deals. Monica, just building off of that, situ that situation, you mentioned that your, at the outset, that your strategy hasn't changed. And so mm -hmm. is it fair to say that whether you want to evaluate a bigger transaction or more bite-sized transaction that wraps around things you already do, COVID doesn't really affect that in the marketplace. The strategy is the strategy, and you haven't really changed your thinking of how what things you want to evaluate or what moves might make the most sense for you. 
Yeah, Peter, I, I think that's fair. You know, we did with COVID, we, you know, we revisited the underlying strategies and, and the related targets um, just for the post COVID implications and really made a determination, you know, do we stay the course? Do we reassess or, or do we accelerate um, based on the strategy? And, and I think for, for those of you on the call who are not as familiar um, with McKesson or kind of where we're spending our time, our strategic focus uh, right now is in the biopharmacy services space, the oncology space, and uh, patient engagement. So, with all with all those three areas, you know, we really determined um, based on on all of our findings is that we were either going to stay the course or accelerate our strategies. And 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 Peter, to your point, from a size or complexity perspective, the the deal profile doesn't change. Um, we're pretty we're pretty disciplined uh, on our strategic uh, focus and evaluate evaluating companies that fit that uh, fit that strategy and and really don't stray from there. Great, Raphael. So as you're evaluating new investments, obviously COVID has challenged some organizations and it's been a catalyst for organizations you know as well in this marketplace and so. As you think about that, and as you think about the implications it might have on a business that you're looking to invest in as a new platform, how do you address that? How do you address the unknowns and take that into account as you're thinking about not just today, but tomorrow and the next year and the next year? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, our view is we've learned in past cycles that you know growth companies have a, you know multiple options no matter the cycle, and so I think this view that uh, you know, there's some sort of COVID discount on in the market. Um, at least we haven't seen it and we haven't experienced it in past cycles. I think very much growth assets continue to trade at a, uh, at a premium and, and uh, it's a frothy uh, end market there. So, you know, we think that both valuation, you know, deal structure, talent retention all need to be pretty creative and, and, and compelling as we think about winning opportunities. Um, and so we're trying to align our strategies uh, to take advantage of those situations. Uh, anything from, you know, process and timing on being able to mobilize very quickly. Um, you know, I think financing has been a little bit volatile. If you, you know, if you uh, rely on debt to uh, execute transactions, I think we've been um, very fortunate to be very um, focused on growth assets where leverage is probably less uh, of, a, of a requirement. And so we're comfortable fully financing uh, from an equity perspective. Um, but I think there's strategies on the unknowns. I think there's, um, you know, on valuation, I think there's been some interesting uh, implications on earnouts where that's been used to kind of bridge a gap between buyers and sellers. Um, I think those need to be simple and structured so there's good alignment. Um, I think we've seen uh, in the market and many of our new deals have some element here, which is um, there's a rollover by existing investors. So there's a commitment from insiders uh, to continue to be part of the story. Um, and I think that gives new investors comfort um, from, from that perspective. And frankly, it gives the insiders an opportunity to have a, a second bite at the apple. Um, but I think the, the focus continues to be uh, you know, markets that we know well, that we understand the changing dynamics, uh, and that fundamentally we think are sound uh, to take advantage of the growth avenues over the next several years. Uh, and if so, I think we're then leaning in and very much being offensive uh, versus defensive as we think about um, our strategies and, and how quickly we're trying to mobilize to, uh, uh, to partner with those companies. That's, that's great. Uh, a couple of you mentioned it. Not only, so I'd like to just transition a bit to not just the environment, but then getting into the tactics of of executing in this environment even further. And as we all know, in making an investment and in doing an acquisition, relationships matter and building relationships are a big part of the equation as well. 
there's all the deal dynamics. There's the there's the, the fundamentals themselves, but that relationship component's an important one. And unfortunately, we're working very differently now, and we're out of our homes. Um, some, you know, going back to the office. We're going to talk about some of those details in a minute. But Drew, I'd just like to get your experience and what and you know, building relationships is a little bit different in this world. You try to get transactions done, or you try to, you know, uh, uh, foster relationships. I'd love to just hear. You, I'd love to just share your experience in that regard and kind of what you're doing, what you're learning, uh, how you're approaching it. Yeah, it 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 definitely is. Uh, I mean, I think for everyone, it requires uh, a lot of adapting, and and frankly, it ebbs and flows. Right? We all have good days and bad days. Um, you know, I think uh, we were, as I mentioned, we were in the middle of uh, the in-touch integration. Um, and I'd say when when COVID really sort of uh, sent us all home. And, you know, in some ways that's even the, the, the in-person and sort of, um, you know, personal part of that process is even more important than the deal process because you're bringing much broader teams together and, and trying to align cultures. Um, so, you know, we've really had to rethink um, not just how we do deals um, and, and what you can do via Zoom, what you can do, uh, you know, or, or go to or Teams or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, I think there are still some things that need to be done in person um, around a deal. I mean, there's, uh, there's complicated conversations, there's body language that, that you sort of feel like you need to want to, uh, to observe in person. And so I think uh, we've definitely shifted and I think probably over indexed on Zoom meetings. You know, I think a lot of us are feeling some Zoom fatigue right now um, because you're sort of going from one, uh, you know, virtual meeting to the next. Um, but but uh, but I think having said that, um, everyone recognizes that because there's less in person, um, you know, finding that right balance, um, making sure that you're connecting with people on a regular basis and for the right reasons is really important. Um, but we have uh, tried to be selective and strategic about doing some in-person discussions, whether it's deal related or whether it's integration related. And, and you know, so that means maneuvering around uh, quarantine and, and travel um, and just trying to be creative on how to get people together, uh, socially distance uh, in, in, in the same uh, room or area um, so that you can have some of those more meaningful conversations. Um, maybe just one other thing, and, and I think we've all seen this, um, uh, not on this call yet, but I think there is an element of kind of humanizing people because the mm -hmm. dogs are barking and because kids are running in and out of frame. And so I, I think as challenging as it can be to do business um, out of person, uh, you know, or, or, or virtually, um, there is that, uh, that, that I think the, the, the flip side of that is seeing people kind of in their houses with sort of the complexities of the day-to-day -day life. And it, and it does create some more of that personal connection, I, I think. It's an interest. it's a really interesting byproduct of one, we're all familiar with multiple platforms today of, of video conference calls, but two, you're right that it, you, there's a whole different personal dynamic of, of um, getting to know someone in a different way. Monica, just love your, you know, just share your experience in that regard. And and Monica, maybe this is, maybe you're more used to it than others. I don't know. You're a very global business in nature. And so I'm mm -hmm. assuming that, you know, this is maybe more familiar to you than some of us that probably uh, some others. Uh, but, but you tell me, and I'd love to just hear about your experience. 
working remotely. Well, you know, I would actually, I would echo Drew's comments. Um, I, you know, I do think there are certain times when you have to be in the same room. Um, we do, because we are a global company, um, you know, we do a lot of WebEx or Zoom calls or, or um, uh, you know, even pre-COVID um, via just a call versus an in-person meeting. Um, I think what surprised me was how much you really can get done on WebEx or Zoom. And, uh, you know, to Drew's point, I think I think we're building relationships a little more quickly because, you know, you're peeking into, into somebody's house and seeing their kids. And I, I think on a call that this group had, I think Drew's daughter was uh, on a piano lesson in the next room. So, you know, it's just it, it does uh, humanize everyone and and begin to build those relationships. Um, that being said, um, I do think, you know, at some point in time, we will go back to um, some level of, you know, travel and relationship building in person, you know, or as Drew commented, when you're having to negotiate through really thorny issues, you sometimes you just need to be in the same room across the table, just hashing it out. And I'm going to, for each of it, Monica, are you traveling today as an organization as you in any of your M&A pursuits or investments? Uh, not yet. We haven't, we have, I haven't been on a plane since mid-March, which is, you know, crazy. Raphael, how about you? I have not yet, although a few of my colleagues have, uh, have traveled, but I think ultimately as you get deeper into a, a process, I think that human connection, as you mentioned, is still very important for both sides. And so I think uh, we are utilizing that uh, where appropriate, but I think uh, upfront, I think we're doing a lot more uh, interaction, you know, in virtual matters. And, and I think for us, I think, you know, you ask kind of what's what's been different. I think, you know, this element of very productive, you know, when you're going on going and barking into a into a partnership relationship, that's a that's an important multi-year um, uh, combination. And I think it's it's beyond valuation in terms that human connection is very important. You know, how, how will you behave in both good and bad times? And, and those are difficult things to kind of communicate via via digital platforms. And so I think as a firm, what we're trying to do is is work harder to make uh, our firm come to life. Uh, with these executives and, and companies and and that means you know introducing them much earlier um, to our portfolio companies and executives that have been in their shoes uh, making those important decisions earlier on uh, you know connecting a lot of functional leaders cfo head of marketing head of sales to areas of how we've worked with them in the past and really leveraging our rolodex of people we know um, that have connectivity to that uh, to that team frankly to do our due diligence as well so as much as we're allowing and opening doors for people to see us we're probably working you know harder uh, to make sure we're getting as many touch points uh, into the teams and, and investors that we may be partnering with um, and so that, i think that's worked out well i think we we're gathering you know probably better information than we did in the past uh, on, on those fronts and and rafael are you are you prioritizing investments um or let me ask it let me start it a different way will you make an investment in a company that you have not previously met? Um, are you prioritizing companies where you have familiarity and, and you can build upon that? How do you, you know, especially as time moves on in this environment, and maybe that answer is change or is changing. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think as a firm, we've done deals that fit both of those criteria. Companies we've known for, for many years, and I think also newer relationships where we, where we were very deep in that market and, and understood that the, the trends uh, and so I think, you know, we're open for, for both transactions and have plenty of examples of those. Um, but I think, you know, I think the market probably less than us is dictating a little bit of the interactions. So I think we're, 
we're seeing processes that are tighter. That's a smaller group of investors around the table, probably over-indexing to those that have, you know, relationship with the company and the executives. Um, and so I think the market is probably placing a premium on certainty to close. And I think the perception that if you've known uh, the company and the team longer, uh, that probably gives you an angle. And so uh, clearly we've been fortunate to have, you know, many of those relationships across each of the markets we track and, and are utilizing that as a, as a strength to try to differentiate a platform. Um, but I think things have changed. I think, as you said, I think everybody here in March would have said it, it would have been difficult to deploy uh, capital behind a, a team that you've never actually spent time in person. I think those rules, um, you know, slowly started getting bent and, and now probably reinvented here as it's become more, it's become more normal. Um, and, and I think that that's likely the expectation going forward that uh, many of our processes get, have, have been reinvented uh, because of this, uh, the pandemic. And Drew, just sticking on the, sticking on the travel point, just for one mm -hmm. more minute, because we're we're all reacting real time. But just drawing off your experience, especially in your in the merger that you just did, when we chatted earlier, there were points in time where and you mentioned it. You, you you just need to get into a room. I'm assuming you know you're picking your spots there. But I think you had mentioned that has been you know you have done some of that here in just normal in just your course of order. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it has meant being creative. Um, you know, I think uh, there are, um, you know, just looking at the Livongo process, you know, there are executives that live near me and there are executives in the Bay Area. And and so uh, from, from their team, and obviously a lot of our team is in New York. So um, we're able to do you know, where we needed to have those important conversations and to some degree in person, uh, we were able to either facilitate that or be creative. I mean, I think it was reported with some accuracy, maybe I won't confirm or deny the details, but, you know, a meeting that happened in a, a state that didn't have quarantine preventing people from New York or California from going there and then returning back and having to quarantine. So those those types of things you certainly would never anticipate. But there are meeting locations that that may or may not be picked just because of whose quarantine list they're on or or vice versa. So uh, those kind of types of calculations, you know, I, I think you can say a hundred times over. Wow, six months ago I never would have thought of that. Um, as it relates to doing deals, you know, uh, that's certainly a new one. Um, you know, let's find let's find a state where we can both visit together um, and, not, and not have to quarantine for 14 days. Well, there's no doubt we all have to be a little creative in this environment. The nice thing is we're all in the same boat together. So uh, we're all trying to figure it out and, you know, together and, and what makes the most sense. Rafael, you mentioned, I want to build on something you just mentioned a minute ago, which was process dynamics timelines. Um, we've been seeing an acceleration. First of all, there's no one size fits all, but there clearly has been some very um, accelerated timelines in getting deals done. Uh, that you are referencing it. Uh, love for you to comment on, on that just a little bit further and what you're seeing from a process orientation and, and, and timing and, and due diligence. What yeah, changes you may be seeing? It's been a trend that I think process have been more competitive, uh, and I think that's, you know, as I said, you know, growth assets that are a premium. There's real scarcity value, and there's significant amount of capital on the sidelines. And so all those dynamics, I think, have been, um, you know, uh, you know, on the favor of the side of a, of a seller. And I think COVID probably has magnified those those items. I think there is a real premium being placed uh, for certainty to close, and and I think that's created 
um, probably smaller, more intimate groups of investors that get invited to to a process, and that's meant that you probably um, have had a long-term relationship with a company or, or bring together some sort of unique angle um, that you know people feel like um, you have conviction and, and and can get up to speed quickly uh, on a process. And so I think we're seeing diligence, you know, timelines that are measured in weeks, not months, um, which is you know very different for sure. Um, and and I think people. Firms like ours need to be very creative and respond to that uh, to that dynamic uh, and mobilize very quickly if we're going to be in a position to uh, to execute uh, in that time frame. And so I think that requires a Rolodex that's deep uh, in order to do kind of offshoot diligence on on competitors and 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 customers and markets. Because I think if you're introducing yourself to that opportunity on the sim for the first time, uh, you know you, you you won't be able to be competitive in this market. Um, so so I think those those dynamics are are, are changing quite fast. Um, and I think that we're we're seeing that continue to play out uh, in in many of the processes, uh, frankly. And Monica, what's uh, talk about your experience, uh, and especially with volume increasing, you know, how do you how do you prepare? How do you prioritizing? How do you do everything you want to do with the you know? We all wish we had more resources, more time. Yeah, well, much like Raphael, I think we are seeing very accelerated timelines. The 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 one I think positive coming out of um, the lack of travel is that it's much easier to get people scheduled both internally and externally. So you're you're able to be more efficient in you know in getting through the work. Um, so you know I mean we really obviously we, you know you have to continue to balance, um, but we we have we have been able to you know get through the work, meet the accelerated timelines, and again you know going back to I think the recurring theme throughout here is you know if you stay focused on your strategy and you're disciplined, you're you're very focused on the deals you're working on and put the priorities where you, where you need to to have them. You're not you're not chasing anything. And to Raphael's point, often when you're being invited into processes, you know the company, and so you're not starting from you know a sim falling on your desk. Drew, you when we chatted just the other day, you mentioned one of the same things Monica did. In some respects, given we're not all traveling all the time, you can be pretty dang efficient mm -hmm. in processing transactions, and that actually helps with the pace of play. Sure. Yeah, I, it it does. I, I I totally agree. I think just getting getting people organized and focused, um, it, you know, has has proven a little easier because we're not spending half the week on planes. Um, you know, I think though, just the despite the accelerated processes. This this is where you know obviously, as Raphael said, having those uh, relationships um, and kind of history with uh, with others um, can really be helpful. Um, but I think it's also uh, because there's this expectation that uh, it's going to move faster and it's it's harder to um, to establish some of those personal dynamics that that you do have to kind of set some clear boundaries. I mean, for us, um, you know, we've been fortunate in terms of retaining a lot of the the founders or CEOs or key executives as we've done deals over time. And part of that is because we invest so heavily in the cultural piece of the, you know, of the discussion um, when we are doing a process. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, I think it's this, you know, you have to have discipline because you can't sacrifice that, especially when it's harder to be in person. Um, you've got to make sure that you're validating certain things and that you're not, you know, that you're not sacrificing, you know, your key principles or your key values 
just because the deal is competitive and because things are moving fast. So it does require a, a heightened level of, of discipline, um, despite all those dynamics. Drew and Drew, what about take off your your the acquisition hat now and put on your integration hat on as we talk about the go. That's a responsibility that's that you also lead at Teladoc and what are you experiencing from that standpoint? Obviously, the, the the funnel opens. There's a lot more people involved now in the process. I assume. What have you learned? What are the you know efficiencies, challenges that you've you know that you're addressing? And and I'm sure it's all playing out real time. But just talk about it from a now you got the deal done. All right, now we're going to execute. We're you know we're going to start to execute. We're going to start the transition into the integration phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to um, over-prepare uh, in terms of um, how you're going to position something, um, the conversations that need to happen before and after um, a big meeting, because, you know, in an, in an, in an integration, uh, in a merger, in an acquisition, you know, a lot of people just rightfully so focus on, well, what does this mean for me? Um, so I think the change management um, piece of, of an integration uh, becomes that much more important because you can't be in a room with someone, see their reaction, and then go talk to them about it. Um, so, uh, you know, so I think there's, there's that piece, um, the, the personal piece and the way that it affects each individual. Uh, we've found it's really important to kind of over-focus on that or over-index on that. Um, but there's also the social piece that that is missing too. I mean, we, you know, we typically do big dinners uh, the night before or the night during big integration sessions. That can happen, um, and so you have to be creative. Uh, you know, one of the things we did with InTouch, um, they actually have a company band called the InTouchables, um, and they're uh, and they play at customer events and do sort of funny lyrics to songs that make fun of themselves mostly. Uh, and so we had some folks from Teladoc uh, join a band and we did one of those big Zoom uh, videos that was uh, frankly pretty cheesy, but everyone was really sort of thought it was funny and exciting and, and it was just sort of a new unique thing. And so I think it's important to do that kind of stuff too, because you can't break bread together as easily. And so finding other ways to, to you know, reduce friction and just sort of put the, you know, take people off guard a little bit uh, is really helpful. Are the untouchables now a four higher uh, part of the organization? I, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's a lot of work to do stuff. It's easy to just pick up your guitar and show up and play. It's harder to get all the equipment and like, you know, I can't figure out GarageBand very easily when I'm sort of doing 10 other things. So, um, so yeah, so uh, it, there is a cost involved now to get the untouchables. Fair, fair, fair point. Raphael, what about, um, are you changing any, you know, your processes at all to adapt? You make a new investment. You've got your playbook in terms of how you want to, you know, get going with that. And are you changing those dynamics or what are you doing creatively or thinking through in that regard? Yeah, I don't think the dynamics have changed as much. I think, you know, um, we've always been big believers of having alignment on, on where we're headed with an investment jointly with the, the team that we're supporting and backing. Um, and so that to us has always been a core component of our investment thesis. And so probably what has intensified is that communication during even during diligence, as much as we're doing work uh, on the asset or, the, or, or the, the space and vice versa, we're also very, very transparent on, you know, 
here's the 10 levers that we think your business has available to it. Um, do we have alignment on the two or three that we think are the most important to focus on early out of the gates uh, and kind of jointly develop uh, kind of a plan of attack? It is not at least fully built out, at least an alignment. And so I think that um, assures that you know both the investor and the team are focused on the on the similar themes. And and through that, I think you build a lot of trust because uh, I think there's always a little bit of hesitation on um, and how is this investor thinking about the asset? What are they not telling me? And, and that typically all plays out in that first year of the partnership. And so I think if you can short circuit a lot of that uh, and, and be very clear uh, and transparent and make sure that you know both sides are, are clearly aligned, I think that helps significantly. And you know we have a set of operating partners that are focused really on the growth levers of, of our investments. And so I think earlier in the process, we're introducing those folks so they can start building that relationship uh, with the teams. That's critical because I think it all comes down to trust, right? If, if both sides trust each other, I think good things can happen, and and that's a little bit harder to uh, to build virtually. But so we're trying to be very creative on, as Drew mentioned, how, how often you introduce them, the level of dialogue, the level of transparency, and and setting up a clear map and roadmap, built together with the companies, so that we can execute out of the gate. Because um, that, that that is a concern, right? If we're if we're delayed on moving forward, uh, you know, it impacts kind of the the ability to execute and, and achieve the, the lofty goals that I think we all have uh, for an investment. Yep. Monica, I want to um, let me let us shift gears for a minute and talk about mm -hmm. some of the, the ways that you and McKesson may be looking at investments and, and, and Raphael and Drew as well. We talked about this the other day. One is, so you're, you, you mentioned your, your strategy from an M&A standpoint hasn't changed. It's evolved, um, but how you look at the profile of a transaction, you, you, you're staying you know, the course with what makes the most strategic sense. What about also looking at beyond just mergers, just an acquisition or a merger, what about investments? Are you looking at this as an opportunity to take advantage of a time to maybe make some additional investments? You obviously have a, because it has its own venture fund, but I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. That's part one. Sure. Uh, you get all the two-part questions. And then the second part is, um, we've had at Triple Tree organizations come to us, both strategic organizations as well as private equity say, We'd love to be introduced to one another and think about making investments collectively together. I'd love to just, if you wouldn't mind, comment on your, have you done any of that? Have, are you interested in those conversations? I'd like, I'd love to get Raphael and Drew's perspectives. Everybody has different perspectives here. So maybe start with just the types of investments that you might make beyond just M&A or how you look at it. And then two, that partnership. And if that's something that you're have considered or considering we, and you've, had some good comments on that, you know, when we chatted about it just the other day. Sure. You know, it, it, Peter, I think over the last couple of years, we've become more open to the idea of making a minor, minority investment in a business and um, have, you know, examples of that where we have invested in the business, typically partner with the business and, um, you know, and, and then grow the business, you know, until it's until either we acquire the remainder, you know, or it's or it's. Um, uh, you know, sold or the the majority is, is sold to uh, to somebody else, and we just remain in the investment. Um, with regard to your question on private equity, we actually have um, partnered with private equity. We were not long ago partnered um, with a firm on an opportunity, and uh, we ultimately were not the winners, but it was a really good experience. Um, I think it is something we would con we continue to explore. 
and have discussions with with you know private equity firms all of the time. Obviously, you know we're going to have to balance you know PE's requirements, and I think Raphael and I talked about this a little bit, but PE's requirements versus a a strategic's uh, requirements. And typically, where we would partner, where McKesson would partner, would be in nascent business, you know, nascent industries or, or businesses, where you know we can help them with a commercial relationship, um, but where they need to grow on their own for a while without being distracted by the larger McKesson, you know. And then, you know, later down the road, we'll you know typically buy out the remainder of the business. But obviously, um, the PE is going to need flexibility uh, on exit, so it you know becomes a competitive process again. Raphael, um, talk about it from your standpoint that Monica alluded to, and. And, and some of the discussion we previously had around the topic, if you would, and and what and, and have you evaluated have you evaluated those opportunities, and then what are some of the things as Monica as Monica mentioned that you're th you know that you're thinking through in those regards when you do. Yeah, um, you know I thought that participating in this panel meant that you know Grant Hill will get a first look on any great ideas that Ella can get the hat. So that's been already a great great return on, uh, on investment. Uh, no, look, I think I, I think we're very open uh, to being very creative, and, and I think we uh, we understand the, the, the significant value uh, that you know strategic partners could have in, in executing a transaction. And we've talked a little about here on creating you know angles and, and uh, unique ways to uh, to maximize an asset. And I think there are several ways a partner with a strategic could, could be that um, that opportunity. Uh, um, you know, as Monica and I talked about it, you know, it doesn't come up doesn't come up without its complexities. Um, you know, I think the, the governance is a big one um, as, as it relates to thinking through how do you actually pay for that. So there could be great intent and, and a lot of business alignment and synergies, uh, but then it's very difficult uh, sometimes to transfer that to a, to a legal document that I think both sides feel comfortable. Um, and I think, frankly, the, the, the big lever that tends to be um, give private equity pause is, you know, are we, are we, are we capping our, our potential upside in an opportunity, right? So the moment that a strategic is part of that cap table, uh, we effectively sold our asset to that strategic because no one else was going to show up uh, because they feel that they're going to be a stocking horse bid to uh, to the individual already in, in the cap table. So that that always tends to be a tension. We're right. If we uh, how do we align incentives and make sure we we both feel like we're um, going to get rewarded uh, on an eventual exit. But uh, it, it has worked and it will continue to work. And we've done it as a firm. Uh, but there are obviously you know complicated transactions. Yeah. And, and Raphael, I think as you and I talked about what, you know, as a strategic, what we worry about is, are we going to be paying for our own synergies and how do we make sure the business doesn't get sold out from under us? So um, it's it's lively discussions and negotiations when you're trying to to work through these deals. But as, as Raphael said, it, it, it's possible to do. Drew, have you participated and, and have you looked at, at opportunities collectively with, with private um, equity investors? Yeah, so we've we've uh, we've done one um, minority investment, uh, more venture uh, than sort of later stage private equity. Um, I, I'd say for us, um, you know, it's it's really a question of priorities. Uh, you know, and I think when we, I think from experience, um, what we've recognized, whether it's a partnership, a commercial partnership, uh, and or a commercial partnership with an investment. It's sort of like, well, is it going to be important enough that we're really going to invest and focus on it? Um, if if it is, then maybe we should just own it. Um, if it isn't, then should we really be doing this? 
Um, yeah. You know, we're we're a smaller company than than a McKesson, obviously, and so um, you know we have to sort of pick our battles a little bit more carefully. Um, and and so as we think about, I mean, I think we 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 have and will continue to look at partnering with with private equity um, potentially if it's a service that maybe is in core, but we think. Um, customers will want. So we don't want to own it, but um, but we feel like we want to have that arrow in our quiver. Um, if it's a technology that um, maybe we can differentiate what we're doing, um, but we don't want others to have access to it. Um, those are the types of examples that we would consider um, making a minority investment or doing a, a, a private equity partnership. I think to the point that Monica made, though, that creates a whole set of other issues that make it hard for the investor to, to stomach, right? So, or the company to stomach. Like if if we wanna have kind of a proprietary um, or at least some level of exclusivity around technology, that limits the upside for the company and for the investor. And so those are at odds. So we've done it once. Um, I, I, I will we'll try to do it again, but, but it's uh, for a lot of those reasons, it becomes a pretty complex um, equation for us. And Drew, given you're doing your job well, you're not that small of a company anymore. So, uh, well, I, I grant, granted the relativity, I understand the point. Fair, fair point. A lot, more, a lot um, more to do. I understand. Scott, I think there was an, uh, a question that someone submitted from the audience, and maybe that's some one that we could just use to, to wrap up our time here um, with our panelists. Yeah, thanks, Peter. So it's a it's a little bit of a complicated question, but maybe there's a, a a quick answer to this. We, we've heard that things are accelerating. We've also heard from Raphael that there's really not much of a COVID discount out there. But uh, the audience did ask just generally how you guys are looking at 2020 performance. Obviously, COVID had an impact early in the year, but just how are you making adjustments to that? And how do you feel about 2020 and 2021 in terms of results that you see presented to you in your opportunities? Yeah, I can I can go first. I think um, uh, there's certainly been for some part of the healthcare sector, I, I guess it's a, a bounce and, a, and maybe a little bit of a trough uh, depending on where you sit. From where we sit, a bounce. Um, I think, uh, but every conversation that I have looks beyond 2020 at this point. 2020 is mm -hmm. sort of a done deal, and so then it's a question of well. You know what does that imply for 2021 growth? Are we? It's a bigger base, so growth is less, or you know, can you continue the trends? Um, and so those, you know, the, it is acceleration. And so if we've accelerated three years, um, those trends should be able to normalize, right? If we accelerate, it doesn't mean we then put the brakes on. Um, and so I think what what the conversations we're having is great. You had a blowout year in 2020, but you know, you got to be able to continue it into 2021 and beyond, um, because that shows a business that has scale, that shows a business that has a, 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 mo a model that that has growth behind it long term and, and is not just benefiting from uh, from the COVID bounce. Monica, yeah, I, Raphael, can you just give your 30 seconds each to on, the, on that on that question? Yeah, sure. I think very similar. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Monica. <laughs> Monica gets to go first, Raphael. <laughs> Me? Oh, you want me to go? Okay. You go. Um, I would, you know, I would say what we're really doing is looking almost at the monthly trend to see, you know, what happened during the, the really difficult COVID period and then what's happening more recently in the kind of August, September timeframe and how everybody's coming out of 
COVID, even though you know we're still in the midst of it. So we're we're getting a little more granular, but um, kind of ex ignoring the you know if there was a downturn or upturn, trying to just trying to normalize the activity um, and look at the nearer term uh, results. And Raphael, why don't you wrap us up if you don't mind? Yeah, I think it's very similar. I think we're we're we've been very focused on on trying to look past the both the ups and downs, but both you know. Companies and, and, and sectors that kind of either benefited or, or or were disproportionately impacted, and really thinking about you know what do these markets and business model look you know three, five, ten years out, and making sure that nothing structurally has changed as relates to the demand drivers and and how businesses are positioned, uh, and then leaning in on those assets. And I think you know typically it's it's more of a friction on uh, how do you how do you think through run rate today and and kind of what growth looks like uh, you know next year. And I think that's where some deal structuring comes into play with with other earnouts or, or allowing existing investors to roll and maintain some some upside uh, on the assets going forward. But but I think typically, I think people are getting more comfortable understanding the dynamics that are playing out and, and there's probably less of a gap that existed two or three months ago uh, from a valuation perspective. Um, but but I think that the core is ultimately uh, remaining focused on, on sectors you think are, that are resilient and are positioned to benefit kind of even post the pandemic um, and, and not get distracted away by what, what happened over two or three quarters of activity. Ultimately, if you're making a five to 10 year bet, you, you better be right long-term and, and less worried about you know, what bookings you know, uh, uh, took place in, you know, in this month or next month um, in the grand scheme of it. Well, fantastic insights, everybody. We're at the, the top of the hour. I'm gonna turn it back to, to Michael uh, on our team just to wrap us here and then we'll let everybody else go, go back to uh, the rest of their day. But I just wanna say thanks um, on our behalf at, at Triple Tree. Drew, Monica, Raphael for participating. We really appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts and insights during this clearly unique time. And, and uh, Michael, with that, I'm gonna turn it back to you here. Great, thanks, Peter. So that concludes today's Market Insights Live session. On behalf of all of us, thank you for participating in today's conversation. For more information on all of our upcoming thought leadership sessions, you can visit triple-tree.com forward slash Market Insights Live. Again, on behalf of everyone at the firm, thank you for joining us today. And a special thanks to our discussion leaders and our panelists. Very much appreciated. Thanks for your perspective and insights. Have a good day. This concludes today's episode of Market Insights Live, presented by TripleTree. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an advertisement for services offered by TripleTree LLC or TTCP Management Services LLC or any of their affiliates nor is it a solicitation to invest in any fund sponsored by TT Capital Partners. Forward-looking statements, predictions, and opinions are subject to change. As a healthcare merchant bank, Tree and TT Capital Partners receive compensation from transactions and investments in the marketplace. As such, the firm's business activities can inform or shape the content shared in this podcast and may represent a conflict of interest. This podcast is copyrighted 2020, all rights reserved. Please join us next time to hear another important discussion about what's ahead in healthcare.